This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, welcome to The Country Hour across South Australia and Broken Hill. I'm Cassie Huff and... Very happy Monday to you. Now, a lot of you are flat stick out there in paddocks and your harvesters, but how are you going on the roads? I know Grain Producers SA has been keen to know the state of roads across the state and are the results of that survey soon, but federally, they're also keen to examine the impacts of the severe weather on rural and regional transport infrastructure as well. But the impact on the logistics network and actually getting the grain uh, to to the bins is also a significant part of that. So it all goes to the economic bottom line of growers, which also goes to the other businesses in in the communities that they serve. I'll have more on that soon. And I'd be interested to know from you, how are the roads holding up given the wet weather and uh, the increased traffic that you see at harvest time. You can text me 0467 921 or phone 1300 222891 if you'd like to get in touch there. Speaking about rain, it's certainly been a very wet old spring and with snow falling in November in South Australia as well, it's also been cool. So it's been a bit of a mixed spring for many farmers. Jonathan Pollock is a senior climatologist at the Bureau of Meteorology. He can explain just how cold and wet it has been. Good afternoon. Hi, Cassie. How are you going? I'm well, thank you. So summer's here and we did have a rather warm weekend, but it comes after a very cool spring. Just how cool was spring in South Australia this year? Spring has been very cool across South Australia this year, but what what the biggest story is how wet it's been. So spring rainfall was fifth highest on record for South Australia overall since records beginning back in 1900. And it was also the wettest spring since 2010, and that's really significant because spring 2010 was South Australia's wettest spring on record, and it was also Australia's wettest spring on record, due in large part to a combination of a La Nina and a negative Indian Ocean dipole. So looking at this spring, just where were some of the big falls? Yes, it was the wettest on record across the Riverland District and parts of the northeast pastoral, mid-north and the Murraylands districts too. Most other parts of South Australia that weren't wettest on record um, still had rainfall in the wettest 10% of the historic range for um, for spring. Are there any towns that jump out at you? Yeah, there are a lot of new spring rainfall records set at stations in the east, and many of those stations have over 100 years of record. The oldest one was Brinkworth with 163 years of data, but there are also records at Capunda, Auburn, Georgetown, Riverton, Yakka, Murray Bridge, and Sudan. It's a long list of stations, um, and you can see them all in the official spring summaries released on the Bureau's website this afternoon. Where got the most spring rain in South Australia? So the wettest place in South Australia this spring was Ashton with 476.4 millimetres. Nearly half a metre, just in spring. That's right, just over the three months. Right, well, they they have a lot of fruit growing there, so uh, hopefully it stood them in good stead, but I can imagine it made fruit growing a bit tricky. Talking about sort of Adelaide and the hills, so rainfall in spring was above average across Adelaide and the hills, and more than double um, the seasonal average at Mount Crawford and Edinburgh. But it wasn't as wet as some of those highest on record areas further east. Beyond the, the, the rainfall, 
temperatures, though, were also very cool. For South Australia to have had snow in November was quite remarkable. Just how cool was this spring as well? Well, daytime temperatures were very much below average across most of South Australia. And overall, it was the state's coolest spring days since 2010. Um, average nighttime temperatures were mostly close to normal, but it was a bit mixed. There were some cool and average nights across some central and eastern areas, and then some warmer than average nights in the far north and south. But we didn't have any areas of, of lowest on record for maximum temperatures, even though it was much cooler than usual. I guess you often get that when you get um, those frosty sort of days. That's when the temperatures can really plummet. Looking forward then, we're, we're into summer now. What is the forecast for summer? Because we did have some warm weather on the weekend, but this cool change has now come across the state again. That's right. Spring is, is a bit of a transitional sort of season. And as we head into summer, it's not unusual to, to still get a bit of the cooler sort of temperatures or, or cooler type weather at the beginning of the season. This spring was, was similar in a lot of ways to, to last spring where we saw had sort of above average rainfall across most of South Australia except last year not so much in the southeast. And daytime temperatures weren't as cool as this spring. And so we had a similar setup um, with our major climate drivers too. We had a combination of La Nina and negative Indian Ocean dipole. But it looks like that pattern of sort of wetter and cooler than average weather is likely to start to shift soon. And that's in line with changes that we're seeing uh, with the negative Indian Ocean dipole and the La Nina. So the climate models are forecasting the current La Nina will start to ease in early 2023. And the negative Indian Ocean dipole has already started to weaken and is likely to end by December. And as the La Nina and the negative Indian Ocean dipole retreat, we're likely to see their wet um, influence start to recede as well. And in the latest climate outlooks, uh, what they're showing is uh, for December for most of South Australia is there's no strong push towards above or below average rainfall. Um, and in fact, it's heading to sort of below average rainfall for parts of the north. So it's quite a big shift compared to what we've had in spring. The summer outlook, the three-month outlook for December to February, it's really neutral for, for most of the state with some smaller areas of slightly increased chance of above average rainfall. So this wet trend is on the retreat by the sounds of things? That's right. We're likely to see a shift in the rainfall and temperature patterns back to sort of more typical rainfall, um, or the outlook showing more typical rainfall likely for a lot of the state, and even some drier conditions for parts of the north in December, although those areas typically have pretty low rainfall. Three La Ninas in a row was quite remarkable, not unprecedented, but, but hasn't happened very often. What is expected will come about in the next year or so? Is, is there any typical... Uh, season or, or drivers that, that follow on from a strong La Nina or three La Ninas in a row? Well, the climate models are showing us that the current La Nina event is likely to weaken um, sort of in, in January or February um, at the beginning of next year. And then all the models are showing us that the, the La Nina Southern Oscillation is likely to swing into its neutral phase, so not La Nina or El Nino. Well, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Thank you so much for that update on uh, what was a a pretty cool and wet spring for South Australia. But uh, summer is opening up. And as you said, some of those wetter, cooler drivers are on the decline. So we'll have to see what happens. Thanks so much for joining me this afternoon. Thanks, Cassie.
Jonathan Pollock, a senior climatologist at the Bureau of Meteorology, there with some big numbers there. What was it, 475 out of Ashton? I guess you do expect it around the hills, but still, that is a lot of rain. If you know how much rain you got for spring, do text me. 0467922891 is the number to text in on. I'd love to hear some of the rainfall totals across the state because particularly in the east of the state, there have been some records broken. And speaking of high rainfall, with that, it has caused issues on the road as well. I mean, if you're a grain grower in particular in some of these uh, high rainfall areas this year, you've no doubt been dealing with uh, some inundated roads and large potholes as a result as well. A new federal parliament inquiry is examining the impacts of the severe weather on rural and regional transport infrastructure. Grain Producers Australia will be making a submission and is keen to hear from farming communities about the challenges they're facing. Chief Executive Colin Bettles spoke to Francesco Salvo. Basically, the real lived experience of what's happening on the roads, um, the House of Representatives Committee obviously wants to get some feedback about the quality and condition of the roads based on the recent flooding and rain events. But I think what most growers and transporters who use those roads on a regular basis would say is that uh, these recent weather events uh, although they're unprecedented, have really exacerbated some of the issues that are already out there. And these issues um, have a, a, a significant impact on not only safety for the people using the roads, but also the productivity of the growers. So we need an efficient supply chain to get grain from farm out to customers as, as efficiently as possible. And roads are a critical part of that, uh, linking the farms to the grain um, delivery sites. What impact do growers face when the roads are in a poor condition? What sort of a impact does it have on them? Well, firstly, you would think with a safety first approach, which is a focus of, of uh, growers and transporters, that they would slow down. Um, uh, when the, uh, the trucks hit the potholes, it causes um, some serious damage. Um, it's also having an impact on the transportation of farm machinery as well, uh, the roads. So, and the, the more, the better shape the roads are in, the more safely they can move grain and, and more efficiently to get it from farm to transport sites. So, it really goes to the bottom line of what farmers are, uh, are trying to do with staying productive and sustainable. Can you explain how the feedback will be used? We'll, we are a national um, grain representative group, so we're asking growers not just in the flood-affected areas but throughout the country to let us know what the state of their roads are and how they got in those conditions. And uh, then we can come up with what the roads look like for the grains industry but also um, what those direct impacts are for farmers. It's already been quite a challenging year for growers. We've had severe weather, there's the road damage that you mentioned. What are you already hearing from people? In regards to the road networks, well, it's just, um, it's already the most expensive crop that we've produced this year. So the figures that were put out uh, recently by Rabobank said it would be a 62 million tonne crop, which was similar to last year's record. But there's a lot of lost value with downgraded crop quality, meaning a lot of the grain will be feed grain, uh, lost yield, and some crops completely wiped out. But the impact on the logistics network and actually getting the grain uh, to, to the bins is also a significant part of that. So it all goes to the economic bottom line of growers, which also goes to the other businesses in the in the communities that they serve. So 
really we want everyone to focus on the task of fixing their, these roads and coming up with a sustainable solution and understanding that it has a wider community and economic impacts. For those who do want to have their say about these issues, how can they go about that? Um, well, they can contact Grain Producers Australia directly. They can email me directly or get onto our website and uh, there's a, a form uh, like with any organisation, a contact form to provide feedback. Uh, it doesn't have to be detailed um, and they can even ask for us to call and, and follow up. Uh, and obviously, if they're already a member of Grain Producers Australia or one of our state farming group um, members, then they can provide that directly through those channels as well. But we just really wanted to open up a, a national conversation. It's not just for the flood-affected farmers on the East Coast, but also in WA and South Australia where they're having big crops and they know that uh, an efficient supply chain goes to their bottom line and helps keep the growers um, sustainable and profitable. Grain Producers Australia's Chief Executive Colin Bettles speaking with Francesco Salvo. Now, Grain Producers SA has been looking at this. The results of that survey will be out soon. And uh, looking across South Australia, there are issues. It's been quite remarkable where uh, areas are cropping up as particularly problematic. If you'd like to share with me the roads that you're most concerned about, particularly this harvest, text me 0467922891 or phone 1300 The owner of a bulk haulage carrier in Loxton says the lack of infrastructure spending and these heavy rains have resulted in large potholes which are damaging vehicles. Max Wisher tells Eliza Berlage roads across southeastern Australia are in much worse condition than usual. The roads generally are in a pretty poor state uh, because of the uh, excessive wet weather which gets underneath the bitumen and um, causes lifting of the bitumen and then uh, you've got a large pothole and it's it's not only in South Australia, it's through New South Wales as well and, and into Victoria. The roads are actually in a, a pretty shocking state. How much worse are roads looking this year compared to recent years? I couldn't put a figure on that but... They are much worse and there's been probably lack of infrastructure spending on them as well, which hasn't helped, so they they break down. It's a huge harvest, so there is a lot of heavy vehicle traffic on all the roads, which, um, of course, when you start with a a small pothole, it finishes up being um, two metres wide and 200 mil deep, and it's not good. With those roads, uh, as you said, having, having more potholes and having the bitumen lifted... Has that been increasing problems in terms of uh, any vehicle damage or all the time it's taking for people in your company to move things around, including grain? Oh, well, I guess you've got to respect the road and, and travel slower, but there certainly is uh, vehicle suspension damage and other damage caused by large potholes, and that's not only to commercial vehicles, but can happen to cars as well. Yeah, have you had to have, have many trucks uh, fixed up or out of service while they get repaired from road damage? Um, well... We've got an ongoing um, repair program, so you you see uh, the issues um, rearing their head. Uh, We haven't had to take anything off the road because of something which has happened immediately, but there's always something going on with suspensions and and things like that. I think the government's just got to um, spend more money on them and get it done properly and get it done as quickly as they can, and that's uh, certainly... uh, We're into Victoria a lot. Uh, Over there, we've got a lot of detours around... um, Kerrang, Swan Hill, um, all through that area, Kyabram where we go um, because of the floods and, and that's out of everyone's control but you've just got to uh, yeah, wear it. How busy have you guys been yeah. compared to previous years as well with, with uh, the big harvest well, coming? We haven't been as busy as we would have thought only because of the issues with immature grain, you know, 
amongst mature grain, uh, rainy weather, cold weather. We certainly kicked off a bit later last week and we're into it now, but it has certainly been a slow start on what we thought was going to be a boomer right from the start. It's just been frustrating for farmers and for us uh, with the issues. Uh, there's um, green growth in the um, in the crops and there's weeds coming up in the crops, so all that adds to uh, costs and delays and return grain to the farmer when it gets rejected for various reasons. So it's been difficult, a difficult start. Yeah. How much return grain are you seeing? Oh, we're probably doing a couple loads a day for various reasons. Um, and the farmers have been a lot of stop-start. They've had no alternative but to do that because of the grain's not mature and we've had grain return because of um, our weeds in it and, and the weed seeds and stuff like that, which is... It's not huge, but it's a little bit there, which is frustrating for the farmer and for us. You mentioned some of those roads in New South Wales that have especially been damaged and, and there have been some, some closures and detours. What about roads locally? I, I know there's a lot more people travelling up Stininitsky Road with Bukpanong Road closed. Yeah, how's that road going? Oh, well, yeah, that road's been closed off now for heavy vehicles for a couple of weeks. I've got about uh, four or five employees who employees who live over the river and I've got to um, travel an extra 20 kilometres uh, to come to work every day. At this point, it hasn't affected our heavy vehicles too much, a little bit. Certainly during vintage, it will affect us a huge amount, but we've just got to deal with it. Are those detours adding, as you said, much extra time or, or costs? Uh, well, it certainly will uh, in vintage because um, when trucks um, use a lot more fuel than cars, I need about two k's per litre or less. Um, there was fuel cost and there's a time cost. How have you gone with getting drivers this year? Have you had enough people to be carting grain around? Uh, no, drivers are a huge issue, definitely. Uh, we're short of drivers, as everyone is. Also, generally short of mechanics and short of everything in Australia, really, parts. And they're very expensive and uh, Sometimes there is a waiting time for that, so it's difficult for all of us. I know some companies have taken to offering huge salaries to attract to attract drivers. Yeah, have you guys put any initiatives in place to attract mechanics or drivers, or are you hoping for uh, well, some more support with that? Well, we've increased wages, but uh, then you've got to pass it on, which is quite difficult. So we're getting by. We've got a lot of um, retired drivers who have come back. I mean, their average age is probably 60 five getting young ones and keeping them is very difficult max wishart who runs a bulk haulage carrier in loxton speaking to eliza berlage about the state of roads this harvest if you want to let me know text me zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one or phone one three hundred triple two eight nine one or you can talk to me about rainfall like bill from clarendon has he's had spring rainfall at 305 millimeters now that last year he only got two millimeters in december so hopefully it can dry off by the, the sounds of things there uh, bill thanks so much for sending your text in that's a, a lot of rain ashton had uh, quite a bit more though 170 odd mils more and they're not that far away um so it's remarkable how how it varies so get your text in zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one or phone one three hundred triple two eight nine one. It is coming up to twenty four minutes past twelve. Weather is up next. Glorious. Oh.
just punches off the back foot. ABC Sports Summer of Cricket. Thursday, join ABC Sports coverage of the second test between Australia and West Indies. This is the test match you won't want to miss. Live from Adelaide Oval. Australia v West Indies. On ABC Radio, ABC Sport Digital and live on the ABC Listen app. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Mark's on the tractor and he reckons the Porter's Lagoon Road near Black Springs has been terrible with potholes since they started building the new wind farm there with all the extra traffic from the trucks, etc. And uh, he's driven to Clare for work for the last 20 years and it's never been this bad before. He had hoped they, uh, they would upgrade the gravel road when they started building. Uh, it was uh, one of the things he was looking forward to as part of the uh, wind farm being built on, on his doorstep, but it seems like that is not the case. Thanks so much for texting in there, Mark. We'll head across to the Bureau of Meteorology now to find out what's happening because after a rather warm weekend, things have cooled down a bit uh, in some parts of the state, but Jenny Horvat, uh, Senior Forecaster with the Bureau of Meteorology, can further enlighten us. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. So things have cooled down a little. Yeah, that's right. So yesterday we did, from a broad area across the state, we did see temperatures of sort of 5 to 10 degrees above average, but we have had a trough of low pressure move through, especially for our southern parts of the state, bring a milder change coming through. So those temperatures have come down significantly for today and in some instances 10 degrees cooler than what we were experiencing yesterday. But we still have that trough lingering um, to the north of the state and we have got a little bit of a cloud band pushing across from Western Australia. And this morning we have seen a little bit of thunderstorm activity embedded with that, mostly across the West Coast District and the far south of the North West Pastoral District. And we could still see a little bit more thunderstorm activity within that band during today, but they are relatively isolated through there. And with that heat, we've still got a little bit of heat hanging around, especially around the northwest of the state. And we do actually still have a heat wave warning for parts of the northwest for a low intensity of heat wave so that is continuing um, into early this week and then more broadly across the north of the state on Wednesday so yes yeah, still a little bit of heat hanging around but definitely in the south we are experiencing those milder temperatures following that change that has moved through we've got a high pressure system that's south of the bite and we're going to see that slowly move eastwards over today and tomorrow and it's going to weaken as it heads across um, but it will be replaced relatively quickly by another high pressure system to the south of the bite on Thursday. So still maintaining those milder and more southerly um, conditions as we head into the middle of the week. But as that high pressure system starts to move eastward and get into the Tasman Sea by the weekend, we will start to see those temperatures slowly on the rise and tending more northeasterly later in the week and over the weekend before another change starts to come across from the west. So uh, starting to see some very hot temperatures um, returning to the west of the state on Friday and um, continuing to move a little bit further um, across on Saturday, but that change will come through a little bit quicker on the Sunday than it did this weekend that we just have seen.
with that middle level sort of band that we've got today associated with that trough over the north that is still going to be lingering around parts of the north and west tomorrow so still expecting to see some thunderstorm activity embedded within that band mostly across the pastoral districts but pushing further south across the west coast district and into the flinders through there and we'll be keeping an eye on some of those thunderstorms for tomorrow because they could get a bit gusty at times so um, especially around the northwest of the state tomorrow we could be experiencing some gusty thunderstorms those thunderstorms still around um, on the Wednesday contracting to the east and up into the far northwest and then on Thursday we'll still see a little bit of storm activity near the WA border moving a bit further west on Saturday and more broadly across the state on Saturday and clearing off to the northeast on Sunday with that trough coming through. So um, really the shower activity confined mostly sort of to the northern agricultural area and to the north today and tomorrow. Those storms on Wednesday looking relatively dry. Could be still seeing a little bit of shower activity in the southeast in that southerly airstream, but we're not expecting a lot. Looking at some of the totals that we are expecting until the end of Friday, generally only a millimetre or so across the state, but we could see one to five apart over parts of the west coast and Flinders district, Air Peninsula, south of the pastoral districts and possibly seeing some isolated falls in those areas of up to 10 millimetres by the end of Friday, Cassie. Thanks so much for that, Jenny Horvat, there with the latest in the weather. In the far west of New South Wales, the upper western is going to be mostly sunny tomorrow. Overnight temperatures are falling to between 16 to 21 degrees, but during the day it's getting quite warm. It's getting up to 31 to 38 degrees. The lower western is going to be mostly sunny overnight there, down to 11 to 15. Uh, Daytime temperatures not quite as warm as the uh, upper western. That's getting to about 30 degrees tomorrow. More to come on the Country Hour as we approach 12.30. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Good afternoon. It's great to have your company today. Now, I know COVID threw just about everyone's plans into turmoil, but were you thrown into so much turmoil that you couldn't return home for almost two years. It's such a large amount of time, but it's reality for some of the Pacific Island workers in this state. But it seems like things are turning around for them as they are going to be able to head home soon. But it was certainly an unimaginable situation when six months of seasonal work turned into almost two years. Yeah, it was pretty sad. Yeah, and some of the boys were disappointed because they were expecting to see their families. Because normally it's just six months, and now it's been the longest time that we away from home. Especially most of the boys, they didn't expect that. More on that soon, and it happened at a time when there were things like the volcanic eruption. So there was a lot going on. So we'll hear their stories soon. Also, I'll have the the latest on the river flows. But first, we'll find out what's making news with Matt Coleman. Good afternoon. Hello Cassie. In the news this afternoon, some business owners in the Riverland have shut up shop indefinitely as they prepare for floods to inundate their stores. A levee bank built in the main street of Manham will see some businesses saved but others left unprotected. 
Federal Cabinet Minister Brendan O'Connor is encouraging state leaders to put the national interests first when they meet this week to discuss a plan to curb soaring power prices. The federal government wants to put caps on both coal and gas prices, which have increased dramatically off the back of the war in Ukraine. However, it's locked in a dispute with the states over which level of government would impose the caps and compensate producers. And the state government says ticketing revenue for the Adelaide 500 is up 60% on the previous race. 258000 200 fans went to the four-day event in the Adelaide CBD over the weekend, a 25% increase on the last time the event was held. More news at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Matt Coleman there with your news headlines. And there's been a lot of focus on the River Murray and what it's going to do. The first River Murray peak is expected at about the end of this week, start of next week, and she's certainly a big river at the moment. It's up to almost 159 gigalitres across the border today, so not far off the expected 170 to 180 gigalitres a day. Executive Director of Water for the River Mur- and River Murray with the Department of Environment and Water, Ben Bruce, can explain what they're focusing on. Our confidence is um, getting stronger around the, what we're calling the first peak, which is the water that's flowing in from the Victorian rivers in the main. And we're looking around that 170, 180 um, gigalitres a day mark, and that's looking to be around the end of this week. So we're reasonably confident about that. Um, we'll wait and see what comes, but that's, we're pretty firm on that. Um, the second peak, which probably around Christmas, is water that's come from the Murrumbidgee and a lot of the releases from Hume Dam. Um, and that we're looking at 185 to 200 with a low probability of 220. But again, that's up in the Edward Lacool system. So a level of certainty isn't as strong for that one. There's, there's still high uncertainty. You mentioned the dams there. Hume Dam had to, to do some big releases uh, Dartmouth was spilling. There's several dams that were uh, releasing water. Has that all stopped now? Yeah, we've been um, fortunate in that the rainfall over the last week has dropped right back, um, right throughout the catchment, and which has allowed things to settle, and we're looking for a dry week ahead as well. And so the Hume dam releases, which were up around 90 gigalitres a day, which they needed to do to manage dam safety and manage the, the integrity of the dam wall, um, have dropped back to the low you know, 20s you know, 21, 23 sort of gigalitres a day now. So that's um, dramatically reduced the amount of water coming into the system. So that's the Murray system, but the Darling system is also feeding into this. And while your numbers that are coming across the border would be factoring in the Darling, irrigators had some questions about how much water was coming in. Here's a question we had on the Country Hour. Our growers up here... Um, we're sort of all talking about the Darling and we can see what's coming down on Flow Tracker out of the Murray and, and we've got the forecasts from Duna or from Department of Environment Water, which we appreciate. But, yeah, we we sort of... The lack of information on what happened at Wentworth in 56 and 74 is eluding us and we would really love for some expert um, information on those... on the Wentworth in 74 and 56 and what exactly happened there and then give us a bit of a forecast on what's what's actually going to come through out of the Darling and the timing of it. So you're hearing there from an irrigator. So they're interested in how the Darling played into those floods in in 56 and 74 so that they can make some preparations. What's your answer to them? It's an important question. Um, The Darling in 56, it was all about timing, really. So you had water coming all down the major rivers of the basin and arriving at the same time, and that's what caused that massive flood and, and coming off the, a number of wet years before that. 
Um, I guess people worried at the moment because they've probably seen um, flows that are really high up at Burke. So the peak at Burke, I think it was last week, was around 202 gigalitres a day. Our modelling says that will result in about 30 gigalitres a day when it comes to South Australia, and that won't get here until probably mid-February, maybe even a little bit later. So the Darling is a very different system to the Murray, and there are all sorts of um, tributaries, wetlands, wide floodplains that soak up this water. So even though it's been quite wet, there's still a lot of capacity to absorb that water in the landscape. But I can certainly understand how someone would be seeing 202 gigalitres a day at Burke and getting really worried. We had some warm weather over the weekend and it's looking like it's going to stay fine for at least a week or so. Does that have any effect on the river and evaporation rates or is that too minuscule to even be able to factor in? Um, I think everything helps. Um, It certainly allows the river system to settle. As much as anything, just not having more rainfall going in makes such a difference and any heat can help right across the catchment. Um, On a day-to-day basis from the river itself, no, it won't make a a material difference, but it certainly helps settle everything down um, in the catchment and we can start to, um, I guess, predict the flows with a little more accuracy when things are settled like that. We're very much focusing on the Riverland at the moment because that's the part of South Australia that's going to see the first peak of the the river, but that is gradually going to to make its way down. You're talking about 170 to 180 gigalitres a day coming across the border into South Australia by the end of this week, start of next week, around then. How much of that will actually make it all the way to the the lower lakes in Coorong? Yeah, it's an interesting question and every flood's different. We would expect to see somewhere in the range of 5 gigalitre to 20 gigalitre um, reduction as it goes through the system in South Australia but as every flood's different it's very hard to predict but we would certainly expect it to be a little bit um, lower by the time it gets to the, the lower end of the system. The government has stopped dredging the Murray Mouth for the time being that stopped a couple of weeks ago. How is the management of the Murray Mouth going now without that dredging? Yeah, I guess the high flows are making a real difference at the moment so some of the um, analysis we've been doing is showing evidence that are scouring out the mouth more, so deepening it and widening it, which is exactly what we want to see. The length of this event, so because we're going to have high flows for a couple of months yet, um, there's a real opportunity to make some really good progress there and it'll be really interesting to see um, how long it is before dredges are required to come back in, but certainly good news for the mouth at the moment. I understand the river's been cut off to Lake Bonnie. Why is that? Uh, so that's the decision the State Emergency Services has made and they're looking at it in terms of their evaluation of risk to public infrastructure. Um, so, yeah, that's really a decision the SES makes. South Australia went through such a horrific drought at the turn of the, the century, the Millennium Drought. I think there was a thought that South Australia would never see a flood again like this. Is there a, a sense of that now at the department? No, I mean, I guess with climate change, we're expecting, while hot or dry gets talked about, the the key thing is increased variability. And so there's always risk of flood and increased variability can actually increase the risk of flood. So, no, it's not that we didn't think it would ever happen again, but it is very interesting to see um, how this works. I mean, it's been 50 years since we've had flows like this. So looking at how the system behaves, you know, looking at infrastructure behaves, looking how the environment behaves, you know, is a learning for everyone involved. 
Ben Bruce, the Executive Director of Water and River Murray for the Department of Environment and Water speaking there. We're just a bit of an assessment on what's happening. While we're talking about the River Murray, it's actually the first time we've seen a targeted watch and act for a stretch of the river in South Australia. We have been expecting it will come and there's, there's plenty of preparations underway. So this is what you need to know. This flood, this flood Watch and Act message is particularly relevant for the parts of Crescent near Renmark. Water is actually flowing into the warning area there and there is a risk to properties bounded by Crescent Street, Plush Bend Road and the river within Crescent Bank Levy. And that's on the SES uh, warning area if you have a chance to look at that. So you you need to stay away from that area for your safety. So if you do live in that area, follow your emergency plan, uh, prepare your, your family and home for flooding. So move some of the items of value to a, a safe place. And if your plan is to leave, uh, make sure you uh, do so with plenty of time. You should probably consider leaving now and only leave if you are certain that the, the path is clear to a safer place. And if you do need assistance, you can contact the SES on 132 500. That's 132 500. Obviously, triple zero if there's an emergency. But uh, just recapping, the roads that are closed for safety are Plush Spend Road, Nelwood Street and Crescent Street. So uh, do keep listening to ABC Local Radio for updates on that. It's a quarter to one. In a flood, minutes matter and you need to take action. The Australian warning system means the same types of flood warnings are issued no matter where you are. Advice. Means stay informed, monitor conditions and avoid rivers, creeks or lakes. Watch and act. Means move to higher ground and prepare for isolation. Emergency warning. Means take action now. Evacuate immediately. abc.net.au slash emergency. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. In the Riverland, but on a slightly different topic. When Albert Chan boarded a flight from Tonga to Australia in April 2021, he never imagined that six months of seasonal work would turn into almost two years. But after pandemic border closures and losing contact to his family during a volcanic eruption this month, he and thousands of other Tongan nationals will finally be able to fly home. Eliza Berlage caught up with Mr Chan during his lunch break at the Costa Group Packhouse at Murtho. I started coming over here since 2017 here yeah, and we couldn't make it on 2020 because of the COVID yeah no flight and then we finally make it on like 2021 to come over and then we uh, we were expecting to just come over for like six months six to seven months then we go home but end of the season we didn't make it what happened we uh, couldn't get a flight back home because of the COVID back home our country the border was still locked so we couldn't make it home and then the company has to find us more work to do. That would be quite hard to process not being able to go home when you expect. Do you remember how you felt when you found out that news? Yeah, it was pretty sad. Yeah, and some of the boys were disappointed because they were expecting to see their families. Because normally it's just six months and now it's been the longest time that we are away from home, especially most of the boys. They didn't expect that. The federal government granted more than 13,000 visa extensions to help stranded seasonal workers continue working in key industries like agriculture. More than a quarter of those went to Tongan nationals like Mr Chan, who says his employer Costa Group found him additional work after the citrus season ended in the Riverland. We, we end up going to Tasmania picking berries. Yeah, our blueberries, uh, blackberries, strawberries and uh, raspberry. 
yeah, for a couple months and then we have to come back here for the start of the season this year. But while there's been plenty of support, he says the distance from family has been tough, especially amid disaster and disease. been a lot of challenges uh, since we were here, especially when we, when we went to Tasmania. That was the first time that we got the COVID. Yeah, and then when we were quarantined with the COVID, and then we, we heard the thing that happened back home, the volcano and the tsunami. The magnitude 5.8 earthquake on January 15 destroyed Tonga's phone and internet connection to the outside world. And it, it was that time, it was pretty uh, sad and it was pretty difficult. Boys were worried about their families. Network couldn't, um, couldn't get any network back home to contact their family to see how they uh, check on them, how they are. Yeah, it was pretty hard. Yeah, for me, it took like almost a month to contact my family. It must have been such a relief when you heard from them and they were all all right? Yeah, it was. Yeah, since as I heard from them, yeah, they messaged me and oh, thank God they, they're still alive. <laughs> yeah, because we were from the other islands. <laughs> yeah, I think they were lucky when the volcano and the tsunami hit Tonga because we were here. Once we get uh, connected with them, then we send them money. Yeah, even the company that we work for, Costa, they load up a container full of food to support the families back home. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, we to appreciate their help and yeah. <laughs> so you're flying back home in in less than a month. How do you feel about that? Pretty exciting. Looking forward to uh, see the families for like over a year and a half now, almost two years, and the beaches, swimming because we live in an island, we always swim every day. <laughs> Have you got like a first meal planned or somewhere you're going to stop and get food from or someone's house you're going to go to? Normally when we uh, go back home, the families will prepare seafood. Yeah, normally they get like octopus, um, oyster, lobster. Yeah, they get like those kind of food. Yeah, fish, big one, raw fish. So you've been to Australia a few times, but this time was uh, a lot longer than you expected. Do you think you'll come back? Yes, I do. I do. Um, I'm gonna come. I'll come back next season because um, normally this is where we we get money to support our families back home. Back home is hard to uh, to get money and a good job, but we do get good money here when we work in Australia. And yeah, just support my mum. She live in a different island, and my grandparents they, they live in a different island. And when we uh, game over. Most of the boys have their own goals and yeah, what they're going to work for and use their money for. I've been like bought a new car, a piece of land with the money that I kept from working here in Australia, which is good, and support the family as well. Oh, Tongan seasonal worker Albert Chan speaking to Eliza Berlage and they are certainly looking forward to seeing their family, I'm sure. Now to the uh, high seas and Christmas. Now, I don't know if you enjoy seafood on your Christmas table, but popular Christmas seafood could be out of reach for some customers this year as wholesalers and supermarkets are buying in salmon at a 30-year high price. Sally and Phil Ma own Ballarat Seafoods in Victoria and say storms across the east coast of Australia have reduced the amount of time fishers have been able to spend out at sea, resulting in supply outst- uh, demand, sorry, outstripping supply, along with a decline in growth due to the warmer waters. Jan McNaughton popped into their wholesale, wholesale store to check out the prices. Was this up now? I think that's all now. Thank you.
last year's all smoked salmon products, everything about two weeks before Christmas, they put in a price increase of 30% to 33%. That was due to packaging that they can't receive out of China or wherever they get all their packaging, and that was in one hit. So it went up 33% last Christmas. Has it come back down or is it continuing to rise? It stayed there. The prices of salmon went up mid-year. They went up again in the last couple of months. Due to half a dozen reasons, COVID is one, the demand for salmon globally, the growth with Mother Nature, the weather, packaging, fuel, feed costs for the salmon producers, then that's got to be put back to us. We've got to put our costs up as well because of fuel um, and ongoing costs. So how much is the price of salmon up at the moment compared to an average year? Your salmon jumped up about 25 to 30% in the last 12 months in three hits, two or three different hits. So it's looking at about close to $50 a kilo at the yeah. moment. Are you expecting to go up any higher? I could not answer that question. Um, it just depends on supply and weather. I, I, I can't answer that question. The shop's quite busy at the moment. Has it affected the way that people are shopping, the prices? No, that hasn't affected us at all. There's also been uh, some concern around oysters. What can you tell us about that? Back to the same old principle. It's Mother Nature. They don't like fresh water, so we've had a lot of rain stunt their growth. And, um, yeah, so they'll possibly be scarce at Christmas. But on saying that, depends where you buy your product, where you get it from, you should be right. And it's just hit December. Have you already started taking orders for Christmas? Yes, we have, and we started roughly two weeks ago. And it'll go right through for another two weeks. Any particular items that are... Crayfish, prawns, oysters, and probably salmon. The CEO of supermarket chain Richie's IGA, Fred Harrison, has also noticed seafood availability declining. The situation is improving from early in the year, but it's not going to be till March, April that we get what we would call normal again. Have you ever seen prices for salmon hitting nearly $50 a kilo? No, salmon has always been between, you know, there's nothing to be between $20 and uh, $30 really. So it's it's skyrocketed in the last 12 months. And look, it's not profiteering. I, I know the salmon farms aren't having a good time of it at, at all at the moment. So uh, unfortunately, it's just the um, reality of the market we're in. Have you had any feedback from any of the major salmon fish farms about how difficult it has been for them? Oh, yes. So we're in uh, communication with Hewan and uh, Tassal, and they are saying that uh, they've never seen it like this. Uh, they are, though, indicating that it is improving. The waters are uh, starting to cool, but it just takes a long period of time when it's all out of the ocean. So they're saying if this, uh, you know, barring a um, excessive excessively hot summer, they're indicating that they would think that by March, April, pricing and stock levels and growth would be all, well, I won't say back to normal, but closer to normal. That doesn't really help people that want to have a seafood Christmas lunch, though, does it? No, it, it's just going to be expensive uh, this Christmas. That's just the uh, reality, unfortunately. And, you know, other seafood, whether it be whitefish, I mean, that's relatively expensive as well. So, uh Yep, no, if you're having a seafood lunch this year, it might be uh, rationing quantities. Although prawns won't be too bad. Prawns will be up a little bit, but uh, maybe we're only talking a couple of dollars a kilo. 
CEO of Richie's RGA, Fred Harrison, ending that report by Jane McNaughton. You can read more on that story at abc.net.au slash rural. But do listen to the program in the lead up to Christmas because we love covering all the great foods that you normally associate with Christmas time. We'll see what's in good supply, what might be a bit pricey and uh, what might be affected by weather, things like that. So make sure you listen in the lead up to Christmas because it's a very important time for many agricultural industries. Finally today, surviving the first year is a great success for any business. So to make it to 173 years is extraordinary, especially in the wine industry. South Australia's Yolumba Wines in the Barossa Valley celebrates this milestone this month, earning it the title of Australia's oldest family-owned winery. Chairman of Hillsmith Family Wine Estates at Yolumba, Robert Hillsmith, tells Demetria Panagiotaris how they've navigated the consumer trends and market gluts. You know, the fact that we've had one family running our winery for that long is, is an achievement. It's, some would say, a miracle, but one we, uh, we enjoy and we're proud of. Yolumba Wines has grown with six generations of families, which is amazing. How has each generation played their part in Yolumba as, as we know it today? Well, all of them played a part, different parts of the business, whether it was viticulture or winemaking or just simply business slash marketing, you know. Um, And so it's worked out, you know, in that sense very well without, you know, people being overly competitive between one another. We've all been, it's really had a very much a, a team spirit, I think, that's kept us together. And if you reflect back, it has been a long time. What evolution would you say your lumber wines has undergone or experienced well, we've followed, you know, our history follows the history of the, the whole Australian wine history. And uh, and that is, you know, obviously in the early years of colonising, Australia was largely, in wine terms, drinkers of sweeter fortified wines that they called sherry and port and variations of the same. So that, that, that really persisted for, oh, let's say, well over 100 years, even into the 1950s here. So in that time, really, what the history shows since then is that post-war migration, I think, aligning our consumption patterns with the rest of the world, it sort of brought us into line with, uh, I suppose, table wine being and sparkling wine being the majority of wine that's consumed now rather than the historical uh, demand or lust, we could say, for sweet of ports and sherries that was so much part of our history. So, you know, we are now a modern wine fraternity really both as consumers and producers and pretty much what we do here and what we consume here really mirrors or parallels what's happened probably in the rest of the world. So on the other side of the coin what would you identify as something has stayed the same and and stabilised the company? I think a commitment and a love of wine number one enjoyment of growing or planting vineyards managing vineyards growing the grapes that go towards the wine and being really an outdoor experience, to be frank. It's, I don't know, it's a combination of all things in that regard because there are so many different skills that are required in the wine world. And it makes it interesting, it's competitive, it's challenging, but it's international as well. So the fact that we, you know, we as a family, I think we've been rather, you know, pretty frugal and conservative, but we enjoy the wine world, we enjoy the people in the wine world. And that's persisted right through. So it hasn't just been a job, it's been a hobby, and a passion as well. And you have survived 173 years, and as you referred to it earlier, it's a bit of a miracle. When you think about all the different trends and gluts that the wine industry has faced during that period, how do you think Yolumba's managed to survive and outlast those? 
we've always agreed the wine world is one of patience and patient capital. So it's like farming. You, you ride the cycles, you take the long view. It's not a game for short-term gain. It's, it's one that, you know, you, you've not only got Mother Nature that uh, you've got to work with and sometimes it has working against you, but you've also got, you know, the economic cycles of the rest of the world. And, you know, wine, after all, is, is a discretionary product. And uh, right now we're feeling that pinch where people are watching their spending and they're managing their own personal economy. So, you know, we ride all those. But, you know what, you've got to take the long view and hope, like so many do, come out the other end intact. And how else have you been surviving? When you think about, you know, these long-term goals and views, how are you pivoting and finding new markets? You know, we keep innovating. I mean, we don't sit on our hands. We've got experiments running all the time. Well, innovations are constant and you've got to reinvent yourselves, you know, continually to improve the way you're doing things and find new opportunities. So new markets, well, there aren't many new markets in the world. I mean, some of them are evolving and modernising along Western lines. You've got places like Taiwan and South Korea, even Vietnam, but a lot for tourism particularly, you know, our small markets that they're showing signs of growth. So we tap into them with a reliable business partner as an importer and, you know, start developing our brand and our footprint along patient lines again. So, you know, the China effect is, is, is a big issue for the industry that we're managing right now. But there are small markets around the world that we can all tap into and establish beachheads. The, the, the big issue is just managing forecasts and what things are going to look like in five years' time and ten years' time because decisions you make today are decisions you live with five and ten years out. And plans for the future for, for you, Lumber? Another 73 years, hopefully, is on the horizon. <laughs> what what well, do I you... Think we'll get, yeah, we'll get to 175 first and then the next milestone is 200 years. So <laughs> a lot's going to happen between now and then. So we just make sure we've got our you know, shoulder to the wheel and our, be alert about what's going on in the world, whether it's governments changing you know, laws around wine or alcohol and international impacts. But, you know, the thing is never to get ahead of yourself. Now, you have a long-term plan, but you don't, you don't bet the bank on an idea. You just take things gradually and work, work through them logically. And uh, hopefully at the end of you know, any of those processes, you know, you've added value and you've got something to show for it. Chairman of Hillsmith Family Wine Estates at Lumber, Robert Hillsmith, speaking with Dimitri Panagiotaris. And happy birthday, well, or at least a milestone of 173 years is quite extraordinary. So congratulations on making it to, to almost two centuries in business. That's about all we have time for in the program, but Deb Tribe is with you this afternoon on your ABC Local Radio. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, and speaking of congratulations, Cass, congratulations to you. <laughs> Thank you. Best rural journalist in the audio radio category at the 2022 Rural Media Awards. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Lovely to, to see you get that kudos. Anyway, me, I'm going to be in the afternoons chair for a couple of weeks uh, filling in for Caroline, who was filling in for Sonia. Sonia will be back with you next year. But it was a great weekend for sport in South Australia. Of course, the Adelaide 500, we've been told this morning, very well attended. The government very happy with it. But some people not so happy with some of the facilities and the mobility aspects that were ignored. We're going to hear from Lisa and hear about her experience with her son, David. Some very steep stairs, no handrails, people with mobility issues having some problems. So I don't know if it 
was experienced by other people. So if you were at the Adelaide 500 supercar race and you had any mobility problems and found that access was not uh, easy, let me know. I'd love to hear from you straight up. We're going to deal with that straight out of the news on 1300 22891. And uh, it is our um, Monday we ask people, what would you like to bring back? Oh, There's yes, been drive-ins, there have been playgrounds, you name it. So have a think. What would you like to bring back? We will get to it at later in the week. But I love this today. segment. <laughs> I love hearing what people want to bring back. That's all we have time from the program, but keep listening. Deb Tribe is with you as we approach 1 o'clock. ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Because I've been here for 35 years, mate. Yeah. And the weather is beautiful. <laughs> when I first moved here, yep, I had a lot of friends saying, what are you doing? Hear it anywhere, anytime, via the ABC Listen app. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.